Chris Jeffa. And I'm Katie Norgan. With us this week is one cute mama, uh, a game maker, a bread maker, uh, a homeschooler, a radical psychi- psychologist, co- like counselor, <laughs> a researcher, community a, developer, uh, a feeder of all. Oh, yeah. And just an all around wonderful person. Ms. Avery Alder is here. Hi, hi, hi. Hi. <laughs> Welcome to Welcome. our Shanty Shack down by the sea. Um, it's a beautiful spring day today. Um, I actually found crocuses in my yard for the first time, which is really <gasps> exciting. Wait, those are flowers, right? Yeah. Oh, okay. <laughs> I heard crooks. <laughs> <laughs> you found some bandits in your yard or something. It's spring and the crooks are out. Yeah. I just, Looting gardens. I sort of, my, my brain filled in all of the bad guys from DuckTales that just wore striped shirts all the time and bandit masks. That's, That's a pretty, like, like, dead giveaway, you guys. Like, <laughs> it's like, I just... I kind of just, my brain leapt to raccoons somehow, that you had raccoons in your yard. Oh, yeah. Instead of beautiful flowers. Yeah, well, I did have a guy get out of his car, walk into my backyard, stand in my vegetable garden, and then pee on the hedge, and then get back into his car. What? And drive away. <laughs> what? Yeah, so that was fun. So, so I guess there's been some crooks in my garden. <laughs> some public urinators. Yeah. That's and then rude. that wasn't even the only person this week. There was also like a little old man did the same. You caught two people peeing in your yard. Yeah, we this didn't. Week? We didn't yell like on at the him inside quite of as the much. hedge. Yeah, because they think like, oh, then no one will see me from the road. But it's like, don't do that, please. <laughs> oh my god, do it in a bottle in your car like a civilized person. <laughs> I'm just kidding. Don't do that. Go in bathrooms if you are able. <laughs> yeah, we're do. just like I don't know. You can pee in the woods and stuff, but like people's yards are. It's a little bit rude. I can't say I've ever peed in someone's yard, except for mine when I was a child. (laughs) I was very good at it. I don't know. Anybody else done any peeing in any yards lately? I feel like I've peed in a lot of yards, but they're always like my friend's yard at a party. Like, I'm invited into the yard before peeing there. I feel like that's as much. Like vampire rules. (laughs) Vampire rules. You're invited and you get to pee as much as you want. Vampire. (laughs) I hate you. I love you. I'm actually reading the best vampire book right now. Oh my god. It's so spooky. Okay. It's called The Historian by Elizabeth Kostova. Mm. And it's very much, she's like, oh, these stories that I got from my dad. And it's all these, like, series of, like, letters and journal entries. And it just, like, goes back and back in time. And basically they're following the trail of, like, Vlad Teepees, like, the Dracula man. Pokerman. Yeah. Vlad Pokerman, I believe his name was. (laughs) The Impalerman. (laughs) And uh, it just, like get so spooky because they're like everywhere they go if they start researching like this book then it's like certainly like they start feeling like they're under surveillance and they're getting like chased around like Istanbul and like they're in like behind the Iron Curtain like Soviet like in Hungary and Bulgaria and like all kinds of stuff. Those are the most vampiric countries. Well, yeah and Romania. Well those that's are, the most. Those are the ones. <laughs> that's the maximum amount of vampirism. And, and it really like <laughs> it really like brought the connection between like Istanbul and like that whole area of like Eastern Europe where there was like all that fighting between the Ottomans and uh, like the Byzantines and all of this kind of stuff, and so they're they're digging back into that history. But it's like Ooh. so spooky because it's like anyone that researches this and starts getting interested in it starts getting followed. Why this so, mosaic looks like a vampire? <laughs> well, so then I, I'm reading this book in a restaurant, and these two men 
in like big black suits sit down and start speaking in an Eastern European language, and I'm like, oh no, they found it. By me reading the book, have I like opened like another level of this? You're in like, too deep, Chris. I was really kind of spooked, and then I'm like, Chris, not all Eastern Europeans are vampires <laughs> or vampire hunters. <laughs> but I did ask them. I was like, excuse me, what language are you speaking? Because I wanted to know, and they're like, oh, uh, they said Slavonic, oh. and I was just like. I was like, oh, cool, like, because my dad's Polish and blah, blah, blah. And so I got into a conversation, but I'm like, okay, good, they're not from Bulgaria. (laughs) (laughs) Just in case. Just in case. No. So anyway, so I've been really enjoying reading that book. And it's been, uh, I've not had my headphones in a lot. I've been reading books in cafes again, picking up on great conversation, listening to really good music, and just feeling, like, very inspired. So I feel like I'm having a personal, like, spring yeah. yeah, this whole week you've been very up and creative and peppy. I've been feeling a lot more like my old self kind of thing. I was very mm. sad for a while and like feeling lots of feels and kind of feeling like muted out, mm-hmm. you know? And so I feel like a part of me that was like gone dormant is like now coming back out. So That's safe. It makes That's me very really springy. <clears throat> very springy. I've so. been feeling the same. About two weeks ago, I feel like I suddenly became a human again. Oh, after good. After months and months of being super sick. Like, like a bed creature, yeah. <laughs> a bed creature. <laughs> a bed gerblin. Yeah, well, just, like, November was uh, really chaotic and, like, and difficult emotionally for me, and uh, I came out of it, like, the start of December, I was like, okay, things are okay again, but then I had, like, a big surgery on December 12th. Right. And then surgery complications just came up. I was, like, told, like, oh, like, two, three days, you'll be back up at your regular routine, and then, like, I get the surgery, and then I'm, like, before I leave the hospital, they're like, by the way, just, like, for the next month, don't pick up anything heavier than, like, five, 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 ten pounds, oh, you know? No. And I'm like, oh, like, my, my, my baby. And they're like, yeah, like, don't touch your baby. And <laughs> don't, don't even touch your baby. <laughs> don't even look at your baby. That's you how heavy. look at your baby. Bad things are going to happen to you, specifically. But I ended up being in bed for, like, two months with surgery complications. That's and it was just, like, it took so long to, like, get back to a place where I was, like, feeling like a... I don't know. Some people are some people are good. I think at at being um, at spending like a lot longer at their house. But like I like crave being at home. But the moment that I'm there for like more than like two or three days without like switching it up, I start to yeah just lose it. Variety yeah. in life, definitely. Yeah. And you're you're one of the more social folks that I know. So it's like to actually be able to go out and meet with people and all of that as well as like. Were you holding court at all from your bed throne? I tried to. Well, the first week, um, I'm always trying to hold the court from my bedroom, from my bed. That's the ideal life. But, uh, Just velvet pillows everywhere. Some exactly. pearls, like, woven into your hair. Yeah. Teaching my children to bring me grapes and drop them in a my mouth one you with, at a like, time. like, an ostrich fan? You've got it. You've got That's it. That's why yeah. you have kids. And why not, if not that? To act as, like, Egyptian servants, basically. Mm-hmm. Yeah. <laughs> well, I mean, like, ancient. Sorry. <laughs> like, I believe the word that you're looking for is slavery. And... <laughs> so let's pull back from that joke. Uh, but no, for the first week, I did have people coming over every night to, like, cook dinner for the family and right. sit with me by my bed. Because um, that's about how long the doctors told me I might theoretically need people for. Yeah. So I was like, well, just be safe. I'll book all eight days. Eight uh, days a week? Eight days of the week. You're familiar with the week, yeah. No. <laughs> We're on, we're, on, we're on Beatles time. I've heard, I've heard the song, yeah. <laughs> but uh, after that, I didn't set anything up because um, I was told that I definitely wouldn't need it. Doctors are always giving people optimistic timelines, and I think that's a terrible idea. We should, yeah, they should really like prepare you for the worst. Like, don't tell, tell people the best. the best case scenario. Like, yeah. at, at best, they're gonna like f- they're gonna feel like 
neutral about it. Give and at worst, you're going to like totally fuck up their life for a few months Give by not giving them the estimate. tools they need. Exactly. Oh, yeah. <laughs> so no, there was like months that went by where I didn't really see anybody. But sucks. It sucks. Yeah, isolation's not a good feeling. Mm-hmm. I mean, it's not a good highlighter on other feelings. <laughs> yeah, I, I think that's too like the spending a long time isolated in your bedroom, not receiving the care you need, like leads you to think that you don't deserve care. Right. So then you don't ask for it, and then it's just yeah. like a vicious cycle. I feel like. Yeah. Yeah, and you end up in your sweat cave just staring at the internet if you're lucky. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and, and at the wall if you're not. God. Sweat cave. Yeah, that's how I feel when I'm in bed for more than a couple of days for sure. Yeah. Or mm-hmm. even 12 hours. <laughs> it's about when I start getting cabin fever. Yeah. A friend mm-hmm. of mine was recovering from a concussion and just like couldn't even look at screens or books or anything and just had to like stare at the wall. <laughs> so that stinks. That's I mean, not, you get really mm-hmm. caught up in your podcast at that point, probably. I guess that's a good call. Yeah. That's what I did after I got my. I almost said I got my eyes taken out. <laughs> I conflated my laser eye surgery with my wisdom teeth surgery. <laughs> you know, I had, when I had my eyes out, I had to Your just, wisdom like... Eyes. When I had my wisdom eyes, and my, my, my baby eyes had to be taken out so my adult eyes could come in. Um, That's such a terrifying image. <laughs> creating an alternate universe of horror, of, like, a John, like John Carpenter. And there's just, like, all of us are born with another set of eyes, like, up inside of our head, oh! just waiting I have body horror feelings from that. That's that's awful. Um, Yeah, no, I had laser eye surgery in my... uh, That was when I still lived with with my ex-boyfriend, who was like, I don't think you can take care of me while this is happening. So I just went to my parents' house after my mom babied me for, like, four days. But, yeah, Mm -hmm. I couldn't couldn't look at any screen, so I just had to listen to, like, books on tape, because that was before I knew what a podcast was in 2010. Oh, God. (laughs) The were year those, of our Lord, 2010. Were those ever the days? Yes, I was taken home from my laser eye surgery in a horse and buggy. <laughs> I used very primitive lasers. <laughs> That's what happened. Someone just held a candle up to your eyes. <laughs> You're like, let's hope for the best. Hope you can see better after we do this horrible thing to you. Anyway, yeah. So it's good to have someone to look after you, but it's very hard to ask people to do it. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Uh, how was your week, Katie? Ah. Uh, better than previous weeks actually yeah i I got um my drugs got bumped so my antidepressants bumped up up. yeah we were were joking about how like the world is kind of awful and so like your ssris and the world are like fighting neck and neck to see who's like gonna win out so it's like gonna win (laughs) mario kart for mental health yeah exactly i need a blue shell to knock all these other fuckers who are doing better than me out of the way No, I, uh, I, I, I was, I was just like, I, uh, yeah, I suddenly, all the motivation that I was having just disappeared. Like for some reason, normally November is my very depressed month, uh, but November and December were pretty balling for me just cause like I was, I was on that serotonin high uh, I was getting stuff done and I had energy for the first time, but that just like dipped after the whole, you know, stuff in the South of us mm-hmm. that's bad uh, I guess I keep paying attention to it and can't do anything really mm-hmm. so that helplessness is making me feel really demotivated and I just haven't felt like doing anything creatively so I was like Some, uh, this is how I'm feeling my doctor's like let's just see what happens if we bump you up and suddenly like yeah I'm I'm feeling much better again but I'm, I'm just still so fatigued because every time I take it it just makes every time I bump it up it makes me really um, dizzy for mm. like a week or two so I'm just like, today, and that's okay. Mm-hmm. That's okay. 
I don't have to be the smartest, most eloquent person in the room because you two are here, so we should be fine. <laughs> so I'm doing good. Um, or doing well, if you like, but I, I've been really slacking on doing stand-up and I feel kind of bad about it, so I really need to get back to it. Yeah, there's a big comedy festival in town all week. And... Serious imposter syndrome. I like, yeah. didn't want to go out and do stuff because I just like... Because some of the big names were hanging out at all the open mics yeah. and stuff. And it, like... But also just like the people who've been doing it even for a year or two longer are just more invested in the idea of them being comics and they're more exclusionary right now. Like they're, they're more like, this is the best time of the year. I'm just like on my game and this is like what real comedy is all about. Mm. And people are making declarations and I'm just like, well, I'm shit, so I'm staying home. Which is sad. Yeah. I don't actually believe it, but that's how I was feeling. Yeah. You definitely deserve to be up there, though. Thank you. I had a decent set at my own show, so that was good. That was, like, the only good set I've had in the last two months, so. But, okay, other than that, I'm good. I'm good. How are you, Avery? Um, I'm good, yeah. Um, Can Can I pour you some tea right now? Yeah, that cam- I would be even more good. Chamomile citrus. That sounds Ooh. delightful. Yeah, sometimes we have, like, the nice automatopoeia of the tea, like, pouring in. Hmm. That's actually automatopoeia would be if I went poor poor poor. poor. <laughs> sploosh, sploosh. Yes, I realize. Yeah, uh, fully. fully. <laughs> I love you. <laughs> Just thought I'd say that. Love you too. Anyway, Aww, <laughs> precious moment. Yeah. Um, um, my my week's been really good. Yeah. Um, today, I went to Quaker meeting. Um, there's two different Quaker meetings I go to, and this is the one. That's like, it starts with like a shared breakfast where everyone brings stuff. Do you have and oats? then we. <laughs> Do you eat Quaker oats at the Quaker breakfast? Wow, we're just. Okay. <laughs> Avery's like, I came here for a nice chat and I feel so attacked right <laughs> We told you there'd be goofs, Avery. We warned you about the goofs. <laughs> you should have come goof prepared. Uh, I did have oat, an oat muffin, a very oat leading muffin. Okay. Yes. Yeah. So. There you go. <laughs> Guilty as charged. <laughs> but no, this one's really good, actually. That's yes. great. Uh, it's, um, yeah, we had, like, breakfast together, and then, um, like, set up chairs in a circle and, like, pile pillows in the middle of the circle. Oh. And all the children just sit there cross-legged and read. Um, uh-huh. And so they're all reading books, and <clears throat> because it's, like, I don't know, like, some of them, like, brought, like, like, Bria brought a dinosaur book from home, but then a bunch of them are reading, like, comics about labor history and indigenous struggle in the area oh because goodness. these are like Quakers and they're like we're gonna have like this wholesome gallery of children's books that also has like a bunch of like consciousness uh, like, raising anarchist consciousness raising stuff just slipped in there Aes you know, for activist or whatever yeah <laughs> I think that's a real book it is yeah, yeah. um that's really sweet. Yeah, it was it was really nice. I really like Quaker philosophy a lot. Me it too. all just seems so kind and so like yeah. I don't know. I don't know much about it, but I just know, like, friends that have gone to, like, a Quaker school or something, it's just like, oh, like, you have such a, like, great foundation for, like, empathy (laughs) to other humans, which is the most important thing. I think I've been really struggling with, though, is that the Vancouver Quaker meetings are quite white and Mm -hmm. quite, like, upper middle class. Hmm. And um, I think there's, like, the, the tension of, like, wanting to go to Quaker meetings because, like there is this, like, activist lineage embedded within uh, that, like, faith practice that includes, like, slavery abolition and, um, like, war resistance and, like, really important stuff. Mm-hmm. Um, this seems like sometimes it's... I don't know, this is actually something that I like, spoke about in meeting today, but um, I think that there's there's an insidious trend over the last 
few decades of like shrinking the boundaries of what counts as nonviolence mm. and um, shrinking it um, to to mean non hostility and non confrontationalness mm. in a lot of cases, and a lot of people like talking about protests, especially like things like Black Lives Matter um, mm. tactics, being like, well, this should have been a nonviolent protest, like wind, but windows were smashed, and this should have been a nonviolent protest, but. Uh, highways were shut down and people couldn't get to work. And there sh- oh this should have been a nonviolent protest, but people like fought back when the cops like literally physically attacked them. Mm-hmm. And it's like it's just like that's those are I mean. all nonviolence. That's mm-hmm. like that's literally what nonviolence is. Like yeah. it's it's where you aggressively and confrontationally hold the line, hold the line, and where you refuse to use like you refuse to punch and kill people. But like nonviolence only works. You know if if you bring fire and anger to it. Mm-hmm. Wow. And it's not just passivity. Yeah. And it's not just being like, okay, well, I guess we're just not going to worry about that because, and we'll just, like, take care of each other in our nice ways. Like, that's a nice part of it, but it's like you also need to, like, do some serious resistance as well. Exactly, yeah. yeah. Mm-hmm. So it's, it sounds like there was, like, a, cr- a creep of respectability politics that came into it. Yeah, I think, I think that's, like, a thing that's going on in a lot of... Uh, liberal discourse, mm-hmm. especially white liberal discourse, in in the, the world of that don't we're fight in. hate with hate. Or exactly, yeah. yeah, and and um, and so that was the thing I was thinking about a, a lot the yeah. last time I was at this Quaker meeting, and this time, um, uh, so it's like a silent. It's like what's called waiting worship, where everyone just sits in silence together and like looks for the truth in that silence. Mm-hmm. And sometimes people feel compelled by the spirit they say to to speak. Um, and I ended up feeling compelled to, to speak about nonviolence and like the necessity of nonviolence, meaning like resisting cops, yeah. resisting violence, smashing property. Like yeah. these things need to be part of nonviolence, otherwise it, it won't work. Mm-hmm. Yeah, um, absolutely. Which I think resonated really strongly with some people and uh, uh, definitely did not with other people. <laughs> Challenge some other people. Yeah, yeah, yeah. exactly. And then is there a discussion or is it usually like you would say your piece and then the people would just sit and like think about that kind of in silence? Yeah, that's part yeah. of the... Yeah, so there's... The, well, that's kind of nice because then it's like you don't get into necessarily like... People have time instead of just immediately reacting. They're like, oh, you actually have to sit with that for a bit and think about what that means to you and then have something thoughtful to say about it later. Yeah. Yeah. And I think <laughs> I think it's interesting like the, the sitting in silence thing because when someone... When somebody says something, yet yeah, you you can't argue back with it. Like you you need to sit with it, and I think that that's like, it's not just like mulling it over in your head, but it's actually just contending with the fact that that you'll never be in a room of people where you agree with everyone, mm-hmm. and just like fully coming to terms with that, it, I think is important. Mm-hmm. It's like I don't mm-hmm. have the opportunity to try to change someone's mind right now. I just have to sit and listen to what they feel and think. Mm-hmm. And so I just have to accept that that's how they are. Hmm. I like, it. yeah, <laughs> I do too. I do too. It's something that's always interested me. Both both Quaker uh, philosophies and like Unitarian ones have always been, and it's it's something that I struggle with in my in my relationship actually because my partner is very extremely atheistic, mm-hmm. and I'm not. Like I'm 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 I I was very like quite religious as a teenager. Uh, I don't know why, but I was just like pulled towards church never mm-hmm. had any basis for that in my family, but it was something that really pulled me in for a long time. And then having left it, 
there are things that I miss about it a lot. And there are like having a spiritual side is, is something that I, I don't, I'm not comfortable talking about very often because like, it's really denigrated. Like even in humanistic circles, they're just like, well, I mean, God's not real. So uh, religion's poison and all that kind of stuff. So it's like, I feel like the, the search for that, like for your own kind of truth and for your own connection to a spiritual side of things is really like not respected in more sort of, uh, rational circles I'm doing like big air quotes here but you know you know the kind of thing I'm talking about right like the uh that sense of kind of intellectual superiority if mm-hmm. you don't have a spiritual practice or a spiritual association and I think that the idea that like oh you're somehow freer or better because you don't have that is is pervasive I don't know if you guys would agree with that but yeah yeah I don't I don't know I think that um definitely I was I I grew up like not religious, mm-hmm. um, and I sometimes struggle to make meaning out of the events going on in my life, mm-hmm. and struggle to find motivation. And I think that like being um, being anti capitalist, um, uh, wanting to work to like betray whiteness rather yeah. than being complicit in it, um, and being queer like, opts me out of a lot of frameworks for understanding how to, like, uh, find motivation when I'm not uh, in a place to, like, self-conjure it, you know? Sure, yeah, totally. And and I think there's not a lot of external frameworks that you can really tap into. Yeah, and and I wonder if I would struggle with that so often um, if I had grown up with faith and grown up believing in higher power or something like that, you know? Like, it's... It's hard to to move through life um, believing in change, believing that I can be, like, part of change, and also having to, like, make up my own self-motivation every step of the way, every single day. Totally. And so having frameworks that feel like um, like they support you mm-hmm. and they, they give you a path forward when you can't carve your own seems really important. Yeah. And, I don't know. Quakers isn't doing that for me lately. Hmm. It's one of the things I like. Don't know that I believe in God, sure. or I, or I don't. I don't believe in God, but I'm like open. I'm 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 open to finding something spiritual there, and yeah. I'm hoping that that's the case because, um, because I think there's like a lot to learn from Quakerism. I'm also like, hmm. like I said, skeptical of the, uh, of the, passive white liberal thing that I see going on definitely sometimes in those circles Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. I guess the the, uh, the, performativity of uh, like goodness is satisfying to a lot of people and maybe they're not very reflexive about it I don't know but Mm -hmm. uh, I guess I haven't gone to any kind of religious meeting in a very long time um, or anything that even has a spiritual bent really other than but I, I feel that in like certain like activist circles you know where it's just like hey and we're all gathering here and we're planning this awesome thing and it's really good and it's like hey did you consider maybe who's not here in the room with you <laughs> did you consider like maybe including some other people oh but we're doing this thing and it's really nice and then we did the thing and it's great and we did it and then people are like hey we had some problems with how you did that and they're like don't tell me I did it bad I, I really tried and it made me feel so good to do it so why are you making me feel bad not pointing any fingers at certain things that happened in Vancouver. In, in our, or in, oh, okay. I'm just thinking, like, I definitely have been that person oh, yeah. in the past, I mean, for sure. Yeah, me too. Younger, trying to organize stuff yeah. and being kind of clueless. But, like, mm-hmm. 
I don't know, different, there's been a lot of, like, marches and things like that in Vancouver, and some of them have missed the mark, kind Mm -hmm. of, significantly, Um, and then getting criticism and feedback has been really painful for a lot of the organizers and the people that are actually doing the, like, hey, we'd really like to help you do better next time, are like, why do I have to take care of your feelings so much while I also tell you this? Yeah. Anyway. Oof. So, there's, I think there's a lot of that. I think Vancouver has some... Because this was such a hotbed of, like, we're such, like, hippies, and we did we started Greenpeace in Vancouver, so, like, if we all come from that legacy, we're such activists, right? And it's like, but all the stuff that you used to do, you're not doing anymore. You're just, like, coasting on the fact that you used to do that kind of stuff. <laughs> I don't know. That's maybe just, like, older folks that I interact with in different circles. I've been seeing that a lot in Vancouver organizing, like, specifically in people's responses to, like, Black Lives Matter Vancouver. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And I think Black Lives Matter Vancouver has done, like, an amazing job of coming forward with, like, specific, implementable... Recommendations. Recommendations. Basically, any time I've seen them um, raising awareness about, like, lack of intersectionality and organizing practices. And it's, it's, it always seems like, like, such reasonable demands. It's like, here's five demands, one of which is, like, have a black woman speak at this event, right? Like, it's just, like, like... It's one. They're asking for one person in your lineup. Like yeah. it's, and and people's reactions are so often like, "Well, what am I even supposed to do about that?" You know, like yeah, it's like they literally wrote you a roadmap. Like <laughs> yeah, they they did all the work. They they oh my god, <laughs> they wrote you a five step plan, and every step is a single sentence long, and, and, it's it, and you could do it all today. Yeah, God, and, the uh, the the. <laughs> I could just, I mean, I could talk all day about it, but that's just the weak, gruel, like, consistency of the, well, we're, we're going to do this about the police request, which just, like, we'll just do cops light, diet cops, <laughs> will be, like, at the Pride Parades, like, mm-hmm. no armored service vehicles, but they can have their regular cars, like, no, how about none of them there? Yeah, I thought no. that was so weird, at National Aboriginal Day, um, I had a booth there with work, and, like, the cop tank was there and it's just like this seems like really a terrible idea yeah like and it's like the big tank was like pointing at basically like all the children's activity like it was just like the where the stage where all the nice like music and stuff was happening there's just also a tank in the field and it was like so weaponized and we see that like these tools like tanks and stuff are being deployed on indigenous people in the states like right now as we're talking like, it's not, it's not just like an, oh, the cops are also here to show solidarity. Like, no, 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 no. <laughs> I, uh, I, I've only recently been able to, like, because obviously I've come up in privilege my whole entire life. And so, like, being a person who is, you know, white, middle class, and, like, read pretty instantaneously as female, I seem like a pretty low threat to a police officer. So they've never given me trouble, right? So it's just only in the last few years I've been like, oh, that's not a universal experience somehow. <laughs> it takes yeah. a while to understand sometimes. But um, but yeah, I guess, like I saw the, the ACAB, mm-hmm. All Cops Are Bastards. I thought it was a signed cop at birth. <laughs> is how I read it at first. I'm like, oh, I've been in this other discourse for so long. <laughs> That only, like, anti-fascism, anti-cop stuff, like, is so new to me. I'm just like, it's, no, you're not born a cop. You chose to be a cop. Oh, Lord. Yeah. All oh, cops are bastards. <laughs> I'm afraid my family will hear this because I do have an RCMP officer in my family and I don't want to have a big conversation about it, but... 
Well, I think um, to that RCMP member who's in your family, I think that, uh, I don't know, it's important to remember that people choose to be cops. Like yeah, you said, totally. that it's not like a born yeah, thing. No. And people continually choose every moment that they remain a cop to remain a cop. Oh, yeah. And I think that any one of those cops can choose to see what's happening in Standing Rock, yeah. what's happening in Ferguson, what's happening anytime that black or brown people congregate, and they can just stop choosing to be a cop. Yeah. And I don't mean that that's, like, going to be easy because that family member probably has a mortgage. Yeah. And that family member ha- might have kids. Single income, two kids. Mm-hmm. There you living go. Living up north. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, like, I don't want to pretend it's easy for that family no. member to stop being a cop, but they can they at can. any yeah. point, at literally any moment of their yeah. life, they can choose to stop being a cop. And Nobody can choose to stop being brown or black or indigenous to avoid cops. Yeah. But maybe, maybe just your family member is listening to this and is just thinking in this exact moment right now about Give it a thought. choosing Give to it not thought. be a cop. So. So. <laughs> so to switch topics, can I talk to you guys about bread? Yeah, so because I was going to ask, so like, you know, you're talking about your life philosophy and like you carving out motivation every day and figuring out like a way that you can create change yourself. And it's like, it feels like you have recently settled on some really cool life goals that will sort of guide the way that you live and would stuff you, Would like you that. be willing to share your New Year's resolutions or your, what was the word you used for them? I can't remember. I had New Year's resolutions, Okay, yeah, yeah no, I, I remember the list of them. I just can't remember if you called them resolutions because I thought that they were fantastic and I'd love to hear them again. Yeah, my, my New Year's resolutions this year are thicker skin, bigger heart, sharper claws, nobody goes hungry, and start right now. Mm. I love it. That's so awesome. I was just like tattoo that on the back of my eyelids so yeah. I can see that every time I blink. <laughs> <laughs> and for me, thicker skin is about a couple things. First of all, it's about um, the fact that I am um, have been for the last year and a half healing from some like relational trauma. Mm-hmm. And um, a lot of the way that it manifested was um, in trying to make myself very, very small and trying to not take up space. And anytime I took up space in a way that like rub someone the wrong way, I would, like, use that as evidence that I definitely should never take up any space or talk Mm. or, like, request anything of anybody. Jeez, that sounds familiar. Um, (laughs) Yeah. Um, I wasn't actually good at that. I was still taking up plenty of space, (laughs) and I was still making requests of people, but I was just, like, just feeling shitty about it, you know? And so um, thicker skin is about that. It's about being, like, willing to... um, uh, take up the space that I require and ask for the things that I require and say what I'm excited about and say what I hope will happen in situations and understand that I might screw up along the way and there might be criticism or mm-hmm. there might be like dialogue and that that's actually okay. That yeah. doesn't mean that I am like a bad person who is ruining everything I touch. It just means that I am learning and growing, which is actually the goal. It's not a bad thing. It's like the whole point. So with that, in, in other words, is that like a willingness to be uncomfortable in order to live a better and more engaged life? Yeah. And also the willingness to like hear criticism mm-hmm. and especially the willingness to like be proactive and take action, uh, acknowledging that that might mean uh, receiving criticism. Yeah. Um, but like, just making myself small and doing less and being less connected to people 
so that I don't ever face criticism isn't actually a good strategy for <laughs> yeah. uh, being happy or like affecting change in the world. You know, yeah. like yeah. it doesn't actually make the the world better for anyone. Nope. Least of all you. Least of all me. Yeah. 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 And, you and deserve like, to be just as much a part of the world that you're trying to make better. <laughs> yeah. Well, yeah. It's yours too. <laughs> so thicker skin is is about that, and it's also about just like, uh, not freaking out about stuff. Yeah. You know, like. Yeah. Totally. Acknowledging the changes is, uh, is is rough and uneven sometimes, and that's actually okay. And acknowledging mm-hmm. that people have to like hash shit out, and that's actually okay. Mm-hmm. Um, I don't know. Bigger hearts about having a bigger heart. Sharper, <laughs> sharper claws is like specifically about like anti fascism right. and about resisting white supremacy, and about confronting cops and about just like being being willing to uh, to be ungentle with oppressors yeah that's Um, great nobody goes hungry is about wanting to feed all of my friends Mm -hmm. and also like look beyond that and be like how can i feed people i I haven't made friends with yet how can i like make more friends by feeding more people like how can i that's so awesome how can i address hunger i remember like one thing that you wrote one time was just like oh i made all these casseroles for a friend and i'm walking them over and, like, I realize that this is the kind of person that I want to be. Like, I'm taking my baby for a walk while dropping off some food to another friend. Like, this is sounds, amazing. Like, this, ador- like, almost an adorable Midwestern-y mom kind of vibe. But it's also, like, radical, political community building. Yeah, I just I'm just going like... to take these casseroles over with my baby. You know, like, <laughs> that's... It's cute. Yeah. It's so cute. <laughs> and also really wonderful. Yeah, and, like... also very cute. And, like, so important. Yeah. To people. So it's like, I, you know, I wrote to you, I was having a hard time, and immediately you're like, I can make you six casseroles. <laughs> like, I'm actually well taken care of in that respect, but thank you very much. <laughs> I have no room in my freezer. <laughs> that's the way I see you taking care of people as well, Chris. Like, mm-hmm. you're, you're really good at showing up for people and being like, I can cook you food, and I can clean your house. And those are, like, I feel like so often um, people want to offer care to, to one another, and they think of, of that as being limited to, like, to listening, which is like listening is really, really important, mm-hmm. but there's like a there's not a willingness I think to like extend themselves and be like, I will show up and provide for you materially. I will, I will like, I will uh, knock you upside the head when you're acting stupid. I will like, I will do the things that that need to happen in your life for mm-hmm. you to be materially taken care of. Yeah, and I see you being really good at that. One of the things that like, yeah, I definitely do a lot of like cleaning for folks, and it's because I'm often. Like, I don't have the capacity to sit and listen, but I'm like, but I could put in a podcast and, like, do some chores at your house, and then it still is helping, but I don't really have the spoons to, like, sit and talk while you cry, even though, like, I would totally do that on any other day, but today I'm just going to do this, like, tactical thing, Mm -hmm. and so it's like, there's many different ways to help that doesn't, like, and then it kind of restores me a little bit more, because then I feel like I'm still getting my quiet alone time, Mm -hmm. so Mm -hmm. I I found that that's a good good way that that's worked for me in the past and we'll keep going on. <laughs> yeah, finding finding better ways to help and to like stretch what you're normally good at with those things I think is a really awesome thing to do. Doing what you're capable of instead mm-hmm. of like not doing anything. Yeah. Mm-hmm. is really awesome. And I think yeah, like picking your own strengths and like and providing care from a place of those strengths is like really important. Mm-hmm. And I think that's like the thing you're getting at a minute ago, but like life project stuff. Mm-hmm. So um I think while I was recovering from surgery um, it was the the same time that um, Trunk had Trump had just been Trunk. 
<laughs> trunk. Trunk. Let's just call them different, like, onomatopoeic sounds, like trunk. <laughs> Blamp. <laughs> Drunk. Well, Trump had just uh, been elected, and um, the so all of the time after his election and leading up to and through his inauguration, I was mostly just in bed, and I didn't have a lot of capacity because I was in a lot of pain every day, and I was, like, just working to get through that and remain grounded. Um, but since I was in bed all day, I was looking at Twitter all day. And since Ooh. I was looking at Twitter all day, I was just encountering, <laughs> yeah, exactly. Like new evidence of fascism taking deep root throughout this whole continent. Yeah. Um, it was just like every single day. And I was thinking about all the things that I, I wish I could be doing and all the things that I knew that I needed to be doing. And I was kind of, you know, I was make I was adding to the, the list in my head of all the things that I need to be doing and I'm not yet doing. Mm-hmm. And I think that like the list is... Like a specter that renders a lot of progressives unable to actually act. Oh yeah. Um, and I think the like, um, like these are, these are all the things that I have to do, and then you're just paralyzed. Yeah. Mm-hmm. yeah. <clears throat> and yeah, the 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 way you do activism, it just like you you constantly expand the list, and activism constantly gets harder, and you constantly know you need to do more, but you feel less and less capable of doing anything. And I think like, I don't know. I think like websites like everyday feminism you know they're like they're like 23 more things to add to the list mm-hmm. and there's a new article every day and they, yeah. it, i was i was just adding to the list for months and doing nothing else mm-hmm. and i came out of that uh both feeling like fired up to do work because i um had been unable to for so long but also very daunted mm-hmm. um and like approaching a mobilization because just the, li- the list was too many things for any human to contend with. Mm-hmm. Um, but then uh, then I did LSD, which is a wonderful, <laughs> wonderful cure for the list. Um, Sorry for that giant laugh, but it was just the, the fucking transition on that was so chef kissy fingers. <laughs> but okay, so here's here's the thing. I came I came through that 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 journey. Um, like thinking about the list and thinking about how like trying to work from the list, trying to solve the world by just considering all 15,000 things that you need to be doing that you already need to have been doing the whole time and that you haven't been doing. It's just like a really bad way to to start affecting change, I yeah. feel like. And and the the place that uh, that I went to um, with the people I was with on that journey was to start thinking about like what is your project? And every article that I read while I was in bed over the last few months was like, how do you fight fascism? How do you fight climate change and deregulation and the rise of white supremacy? Like, how do you fight all of these things or the emboldening of white supremacy? Like, how do you fight all these things simultaneously? And every single time, like, an activist wrote an article about this, they were like, have a project. Have one thing that Mm -hmm. you care about. And then just every day, care more deeply about it and do more about it and become more militant about protecting it. Um... And so we were talking about that um, while on LSD, and uh, my compatriot had said um, <laughs> that, that that seemed really good, but there's this, there's this problem with having one life project, which is that if it crashes and burns, then you're like, well, my life no longer has meaning. Yeah, yep. and that's you dangerous. Gotta diversi- <laughs> you got to diversify your portfolio, your care portfolio. <laughs> Both of you were immediately like, yup, like, like that's definitely happened to you. And that happened to me. That happened to me in 2015 with story games Mm -hmm. it had been like my life project for a decade and 
uh, I stopped knowing how to care about it and knowing how to get value out of the work that I was putting into it. Mm. Um, and it was like paying rent, which I was really fortunate for, but it wasn't leaving me feeling empowered and directed in the world. Mm-hmm. Um, so then we we're like, cool, one life project. That's a terrible idea. Two life projects. That's perfect. <laughs> that's a sweet spot right there. Um, but I think, I think that it is because it allows you to, uh, be an expert in, like, you can definitely become an expert in two things. For sure. Um, there's enough time in the day to do that. But it allows you to be the expert in this community that knows something about that community. You can be like, as the, uh, as a, like, children's community facilitator who knows about beekeeping, I can cross-apply this knowledge in, like, a unique, special way because mm-hmm. every other children's community facilitator, you know, knows about other weird shit. They're, they're into whales. They're into violins. They're... <laughs> Whales that play violins. Yeah, that, it's, a, it's a deep, rich field. Yes. Violin playing whales. We, we all know that whales can only play the bassoon. That's the one instrument they no, can play. No, their whale calls kind of sound like a violin a little bit. That's true. But we started talking a lot about like the power of the ampersand, the power of having projects and thinking about how you can cross-apply them mm. and practicing cross-applying them and then turning towards the world, being like, okay, I've got my projects, and I'm just going to cross-apply them to everything that everyone else is doing. Like... You are doing a lot of work to, like, shut down pipelines. How can I use my project of free bread to support you? And, like, that that's a great example, I think, because, like, a lot of, like, any social movement that has had, like, sustainability, su- sustainability built into it has had um, a communal kitchen, like, yeah. operating at the heart, right? Like the Black Panthers, like, early on established, like, a breakfast program for mm-hmm. children in their community. Mm-hmm. And, like, any, like, strike, um, any, like, large uh, industrial strike, like a coal mine strike or something like that, if it is successful, it is in part successful because there was a communal kitchen that kept the picketers going that brought people in to support them, that, mm-hmm. like, had families pooling their resources so they weren't struggling to feed themselves on less income. Mm-hmm. Um, and having nothing to offset that, Yeah, that's that, good. Right? That empowers you to then be able to take the time off work that it needs to be able to, like, make a strike successful. Yeah. yeah. When I was um, doing labor studies a few years ago, there was this course I took called Women, Workers, and Farmers, and a big focus of that was on um, how, how, like, traditional trade unions and early industrial unions were largely successful in, like, large, like, long, prolonged strikes because of women's auxiliaries. Mm. And so the, the, the men would go to strike, and they would pick at the mines, and the women's auxiliary would pool together, and they would start making soup, and they would start making bread. And I think uh, that's inspiring knowledge to have mm-hmm. because it's, it's like a reminder that you don't need to know how to hold a picket line and also cook for large groups of people and also do direct action, and also you need to have your projects, and mm-hmm. you need to know how to cross-apply them, and that's it. That's awesome. So to, to go back, you mentioned free bread. That's one of your projects. Free bread is one of my life projects, yeah. Um, free bread and non-pathologizing therapy. Those are my those are my two life projects that can I've settled you, on. Can you explain each of those in a little... Well, one's probably a little bit easier to explain. <laughs> yeah, free bread, I like free understand. Bread, okay, no, yeah. no, free gonna... bread, bigger heart, those kinds of things are a little bit... <laughs> yeah. you know. I'm going to explain it anyway. So yeah, I like explaining please. it. I'm, I'm, I'm we working, like bread, I'm so... working on the pitch. The pitch <laughs> for free bread. Pitch us where the dragon's den, obviously. <laughs> the sea hag's den. <laughs> yeah, I think that, um, that thinking about like producing nourishing uh, 
staple foods for community is really important because not only are you bringing people together and establishing community and making sure they're well nourished and helping people to like feel uh, empowered in their bodies even when they are broke and even when they're like going through mental health issues and not able to cook like well-rounded meals for themselves but you're also I, th I think if you are if you're picking some staple foods and being like like bread especially for me but like bread lasagna there's a few others that I'm like these are the things that I want to cook and I want to provide for my community um, I'm now more able to start thinking about like how do I localize the work that I'm doing, the food work that I'm doing and like providing for my community. Mm -hmm. um, and like sourdough bread is what I've been doing. And that's like, it's a really easy thing to start thinking about, like localizing and start caring about production chains because mm, it, it is just flour, salt, water. That's it. Mm -hmm. um, I've been cooking my bread with like hemp seeds on the bottom. So there's this like seedy little layer to it. Mm. It's, mm, yeah. That's, that's, Sorry, that sounds <laughs> so good. Everyone, everyone does their action. It adds it's some really like, good. adds a little bit of fat and protein and stuff and just makes it more nutritious and, and more yeah. delicious. Yeah. And, and there's like a little bit of a texture yeah. thing going on. It's, yeah, every, everyone's surprised. with like, mmm, seeds. I just love sourdough so much. It's well, such a wonderful thing. Monday night, 5.30 every week, we have community dinners yeah. and you should just come over and eat bread. Just eat that bread. Yeah. Nothing else. Just tear hunks of it off. Yeah. Also, yum, there's yum, other yum. food to accompany the bread. No, nope, just bread. Just bread. Just Great. bread forever. Great. I'm like the an old-timey soldier. Just give me bread and water, <laughs> well, and I'm like, happy. I'll Katie swap and I, the poop Katie deck. Can you talk about like how much we love making soups in yeah. like large batches? So it's like that fits nicely with your bread project. <laughs> I'm a <laughs> yeah. Well, I'm a I'm a I'm a I'm a, I'm a, I'm a soup lesbian. I'm like that's not true. <laughs> a soup bisexual? Um, no, I was just like uh, that's that's a. That's the thing that I could provide in a community kitchen is like a very wonderful, nourishing soup. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So I also am really invested in the idea of uh, providing care to activist communities because mm -hmm. I'm not a frontline person. Yeah, I'm, I'm not, not good at I'm not good at confrontation. Um, that's not a thing I'm good at, but I'm really good at um, I, I think we share a number of uh, like facility no that's not the word i'm going for Faculty. but faculties i don't know we have some of the some similar strengths i think from what little i know of you mm -hmm. um because we have only hung out a couple of times now but uh but i've been following you on the internet for a couple of years now uh i think that i want to like recognize people's emotions like where they're at and stuff and and be able to just acknowledge them and say like hi you're here i'm here i'm seeing you we're both people that kind of thing um and just like taking care of other people really means a lot to me, but I can't, I can't go on the front and like yell in a cop's face. Like I, I should, because, because I have privilege that will protect me. That would be a, a helpful and useful thing, but I'm not there right now. So being able to support people who are good at doing that. Great. If I can help them get up every day and do what they got to do, like, I think that's, that's something that I can do now. Mm -hmm. Maybe in the future I can, I can be that like face up at the front and be scared and just live with that and be there. But, uh, but right now I, I really like the idea of, of creating nurturing spaces for other people. So mm -hmm. I love that you do that. I think it's really wonderful. No, and it, yeah, just I'm reflecting again on saying like any sustainable movement has that kitchen at the heart of it is like a really important thing to yeah. remember. Turns so it's like actually a super a valuable thing. thing to have. And so it's not just, oh, I'm just doing this thing. It's like, no, it's actually a central yeah. tenant that will actually let us, like, keep doing Devaluing this. Devaluing so. feminized labor in ourselves is, uh, it's, yeah. it's easy to do. That's real. <laughs> but it's actually, like, for, for especially, like, uh, a militant protest to last longer than, like, 
10 hours. Yeah. Either you need food there or people need to be leaving constantly mm-hmm. to, to go eat. And for a picket line to run for weeks and weeks and weeks, like, that means families are running on, like, a cut income. Yeah. Because they're, like, just running off the strike fund, which is not going to be much, as much as full wages. And they're, you know, they're, they're having to do more with less. Mm-hmm. And so, like, pooling resources, creating communal uh, kitchens, putting those kitchens as close to the front line as possible, like, yeah. sustains movements and drives action. So cool. Definitely. So I've been thinking a lot about those kinds of things, thinking about how you how you build activism from a place of strengths, from a place of, like, I can contribute bread and therapy. These are the things that I've, I've got them down. And how can I just cross-apply them? How can I apply free bread to as many problems as possible? Mm-hmm. How can I apply, like, non-pathologizing therapy to as many problems and locations of problematization as possible? Mm-hmm. You know, like, how can I... How can I be a frontline crisis therapist? How can I do these kinds of things? And how can I do them in like a radical, transformative, liberatory way? Mm. Can you explain non-pathologizing therapy a little bit? Yeah, I'm actually I'm super excited about <laughs> yeah, it. <Ian. laughs> yeah, that's so that's the other thing. That's the other thing that um, that's the other like idea that I'm that I'm riding the wave of coming out of that LSD trip. Is just like when you have life projects, part of it is just like being so earnest about them and being so. Yes, I'm very excited to tell you about this. <laughs> like just, just going as deep in to yeah. unbashfulness as you possibly can with those life projects. Oh, that's enthusiasm so cool. is a very attractive trait, I think, mm-hmm. in people. It's it's hard to sustain in Vancouver sometimes. It is. Yeah, we are post irony, dry, <laughs> sarcastic. We'll just so we'll get. God back to... forbid you're ever excited about anything here. Yeah. I want to talk about non-pathologizing therapy in, in a second, but I want to respond to that first. Yeah. When I went to, I went to Sweden to Malmo uh, a few years ago to give a talk for their Pride um, about role playing games, and when I was there, like I was surrounded by like a bunch of like politicized queers, and when they talked about their politics, it was like it was like such an unfamiliar, like language. To, well, they were talking in English, but like it was such unfamiliar ways of talking to right. me. Um, cause they were like, I am a Marxist. My friend is a liberatory anarchist. Uh, my friend is a liberatory anarchist and also a feminist. And they were just like, every time they talked about really anything in politics or anything in social movements, they're using like the, the capital letter version and they weren't equivocating and they weren't trying to undercut whatever they said. Mm. They weren't like, I am a feminist, though obviously I have problems with feminism, like, for example, this and this and this and this and this, and I struggle with it, and I think that the people in Vancouver are very quick to try and distance themselves from any earnest relationship to anything, but especially to, like, political projects. Yeah. And I think that, like, it seems like it seems like having like that critical reflexive like ability to like self interrogate your own projects is very vital and very important and developing like greater intersectional awareness is super important. But sure. when you're talking and, about them to others to have a lot more like just unequivocal Yeah, like it it just seems like like talking about the things that you care about as if you didn't care about them doesn't seem like a great strategy. You know, it just <laughs> <Nope>. it, <laughs> No, you're totally right. Just being, like, pissy and blasé about the things that you think are going to change the world doesn't position them to change the world that well. Yeah, I guess it's it's almost like it it has some self-defeating 
aspects built into it, right? Because mm-hmm. you're like, I don't think this is going to work, so I don't want anybody to think that I'm super invested in it because when it falls apart, then I won't be so sad or something. Like I do that with, with interpersonal relationships or have in the past, like with romantic relationships. Like, well, I don't want to get too invested in this because when it falls apart, I'll be really sad. But like then you don't have a full relationship, and I think that that's mm-hmm. applicable in, in a lot of different spaces and places. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, and I think that... I think that challenging the things you love is important mm-hmm. and that's how you make them better. Yep. But I think that doing that in a way that erodes your, your love for them mm-hmm. seems like maybe the wrong approach to just start from a default with, you know? Yeah, totally. <laughs> and so I've, I've been working to be just like really like earnest and excited to talk about my life projects. Awesome. Um, the joke in my house is like, have you heard about bread? Have you uh, heard the good news? <laughs> Because I think that people should just be sincerely excited about the things that they can provide to the world Mm -hmm. so that others can be excited about receiving those gifts Mm -hmm. and excited about talking about their own projects and excited about finding their own projects and finding Mm. their own strengths and naming them and claiming them and like celebrating them. Mm -hmm. Because I don't think that we're going to like, I don't think the revolution works if everyone is like milk toast about their own contributions to it you know like yeah i do i do it's just the word the word i was just like fuck i am that thing i'm so milk toast cool we'll call out yeah no 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 it's it's good it's good self uh, self interrogation and i'm just like give me some sourdough toast so i can and milk <laughs> i'm just hungry this is all that's happening right now oh man but yeah so non-pathologizing therapy what i mean by that is Right now, what I most immediately mean by that is narrative therapy, which is the kind of therapy that I am training to become a therapist in. I love narrative therapy so much. And narrative therapy is is great. It starts from the place of, like, uh, throwing the DSM into the fire. Mm -hmm. Where um, it belongs. And then saying, what if people knew about their own bodies and knew about their own brains and actually deserved the storytelling rights to what's going on in their own lives. What if we started from that premise? What if we empowered people to tell stories about their own lives and claim those stories as their own? And what if we empowered people to, like, look at the problem stories that they're telling, find clues that there's other stories possible, and just start telling those ones instead? Mm -hmm. And I think narrative therapy is, like, it's interesting because it's often, like, focusing on someone telling a story about, like, why their relationship doesn't work anymore right Mm -hmm. or like why they're why they um are secretly a bad person or why they are pathetic because they put up with abuse in an abusive relationship Mm -hmm. and for like for that example it's uh the the therapeutic process is about looking at how they behaved in that abusive relationship and asking like when did you start telling yourself the story that you're pathetic in that situation? Mm-hmm. What are some counterexamples? Oh, cool. So that so there is the possibility to tell a different story. We could tell a story about how you were actually really resilient, about how you protected your heart, how about how you made strategic choices, about how you are out of it now, and like how can we how can we look to that and we can build a story about how you got out? Mm-hmm. How can we tell a story about how you? resisted in the ways that were strategic and safe to you moment to moment and how can we see that as a source of strength 
Yeah, I think it's so cool. There's a lot of, in narrative therapy, looking at, like, where did you learn that from? Like, when it's like, oh, well, I'm not allowed to do blah, blah, blah. It's like, oh, okay. Like, and in a very non-judgmental, like, very curious interview style, you go, where did you learn that from? Oh, well, I guess, you know, my dad told me blah, 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 this and that. And it's like, okay, well, is it possible that, like, he might have learned that from somewhere else and kind of tracing that backwards? Mm-hmm. Like, is that necessarily true? Or, like, can you, again, yeah, find some other times that like, you didn't do that? Like, un- unpicking things that we think are objective truths in our own lives. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Or things that are fixed. It's like a, it's definitely like a post-structural tradition in mm-hmm. that it's, it's acknowledging that there can be many truths, there can be many stories. Mm-hmm. And it draws a lot on, like, pragmatism. And, like, especially, like, like capital P pragmatism, like the Scottish school of, of philosophical thought that is about looking at, like, what works because if it's if it works, it's true. That's so Scottish. I love it. <laughs> Successively Scottish. Yeah. Love the Scots. I've done more like traditional psychology training a little bit as mm-hmm. well, and like including history of psych uh, stuff, and lots of stuff about pathology there. Def- definitely. Yeah. Yeah. Um, it is, but there's there's this like uh, discourse that goes for for uh, years and or. Centuries about rationalism and empiricism, and like, mm-hmm. do you know things by by developing like provable uh, frameworks and then filling in the gaps, or do you know things by like having experiences and then building frameworks around them? Mm-hmm. And then like Scottish pragmatism comes in, and it's like, like who cares? Like, <laughs> why are you talking? What if like, it's none of them? Why don't we do the things that the, that work? Because if something works, it's true. That's just what truth is. Can we stop talking about this now? Like it's it's so it's so <laughs> I love it. It's extremely extremely. You're Scottish. just thinking about people in your life that you know that are Scottish. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Oh man, just like, yep. Um, That's awesome. But there's there was this one um, uh, therapist uh, before narrative therapy was like established as a specific practice. There was this one therapist whose name I cannot remember right now, but he had this type of therapy called role therapy where you would talk about your problem with him, and then he would be like, what kind of person could, like, solve this problem? Like, for example, could a pirate solve this problem? And you're like, yes, a pirate would have no trouble solving this problem. Like, I I can't solve this problem, but obviously a pirate could. And then he'd be like, cool, for the next two weeks, your job is to be a pirate. And not, like, pretend to be a pirate. And not, like, do pirate things. Your, Your job is to be a pirate. And when you come back... You're, you're gonna have to solve that problem probably because pirates can solve this problem and you are a pirate great good session and you come back the next week and be like great so pirates probably couldn't solve this new problem you have and you're like no and he's like what kind of person could solve it and you're like well i don't know like definitely not me definitely not a pirate like maybe an astronaut could and he's like great you're an astronaut <laughs> go to space <laughs> asshole <laughs> but the weird thing is like this works this like this this works over and over and over again and part of the reason it works is that people believing that they have the power to solve a problem is just actually part of what it takes to solve a problem. Yeah. And especially when it's like psychological, someone someone telling you like that you someone pointing out that you already have all the tools to mm-hmm. solve something is just like it's it's huge, it's pivotal. Yeah. And I think like traditional psychology and psychiatry um tells it, it tells stories about how you are uh, 
a subject that needs to be classified and fixed by an external expert who has language and tools and vocabulary that you don't. Right. And that, that you are broken and that you have an illness. Yeah. That you are sick and that you can't possibly understand the sickness because part of the sickness is not understanding it. And... Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's so it's like very traditional psychology. Yeah. And, I, and I, I think that like probably that model helps some people sometimes. Mm-hmm. That sometimes people just want to give over power to someone else who can be like, great, you're fixed. I solved you with these pills. Um, and like, I, I don't want to doubt that that can just like legitimately be helpful for mm-hmm, some people. Mm-hmm. But like narrative therapy starts in this interesting place of like somewhere in you, there is the story about how you are good enough and whole enough and mm-hmm. unbroken enough and powerful enough to overcome this. And right now your, your life is being guided by this story that's harmful to you. Mm-hmm. And you built this story because you live in a world where oppression exists. Mm-hmm. And, pre- yeah. and it's oppressive very, forces told you to build this story. Yeah, it's it very, you. very good at looking at, like, a lot of structural stuff where it's, like, it's not you. It's, like, again, that, like, where did you learn this? It's, like, from culture or, mm-hmm. you know. And it's, like, I really like part of it where you're you're sort of taking your problem that you have and externalizing it a little bit so that you can have a conversation with it. So it's like, oh, me and my anxiety, like my relation, it's, I'm not an anxious person. I have a relationship with my anxiety mm. and it can kind of like, my anxiety is telling me this right now and you can kind of, it helps you. Yeah. 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 And that, that cool. process specifically is called like externalization mm-hmm. where you take the problem and t- transform it from a thing that's inherently you and it's inside yeah. you to mm-hmm. being something that you have a relationship with right um and i think that's like really powerful when Mm -hmm. i when i went into narrative therapy as a client i was talking a lot about um feeling like i don't have the capacity to do all the things that a normal person ought to be able to do in a day like cook for myself and clean and get out of bed at a certain time and and all of these things like together i just like did feel capable of Mm -hmm. and um, I got asked questions like, when did you learn that you should be capable of these things? And we started externalizing these things. We, we asked like unique questions to, to pull out where this came from. And we externalized it. And we talked about like, if you could name this force in your life that's telling you you ought to be able to do all these things, like what would you name it? And some people are like, I'm going to name it like the specter. And they give it like, <laughs> like badass epic names. And some people are like Dorothy. Um, <laughs> and so that, that character was Jack. And then... And we, we talked about Jack. We, we imagined, like, what Jack would look like if Jack was, like, a person. And uh, then the therapist was like, where does Jack live? And I was like, yeah, definitely, like, in my bedroom. And she was like, did you invite Jack to live in your bedroom? We talked about when Jack had arrived in my life. We talked about the fact that he lived in my bedroom. And then she asked me, like, did you did you invite him to, to be there? And I was like, no, definitely not. He just showed up one day and hasn't left. He's just in my bedroom. And, he's not and, paying rent. <laughs> exactly. He's not paying rent. He didn't ask. He doesn't have any stuff there. That's all my stuff. Sort of a dick. <laughs> I know a dick. He's a terrible roommate. <laughs> Never does the dishes. And but just then... tells me that I should be doing them instead <laughs> and feel bad about it. Like, what nerve? <laughs> Jack. But it was it was actually, like, really empowering to, like, to, to realize that, like, it wasn't that I was broken. It's that this this figure had shown up and moved into my bedroom yeah. without asking me and was just there all the time talking shit. Mm-hmm. And, like, uh, the fact that, like, I had instinctively gone and given this, like, a masculine 
name. Like I, I had created a able-bodied white man and he sat in the corner of my room and didn't understand oppression and didn't understand chronic illness and didn't understand like what it's like to be a queer trans woman, what it's like to be chronically ill. Uh, and he just talked shit as if everyone ought to be able to do the things that he's able to do. Uh, and it just felt so liberating to get to like ask Jack to please leave my room. Like, he needs to find his own place to live, yeah. you know? And, like, that was Jack, just... Jack, you don't even like me. Why are you here? <laughs> yeah, and the fact that it's, like, if, a, if like, a friend of yours was shit-talking you like that, you would, like, stand up for yourself. Or if that person, if, like, Jack was talking shit to Katie like that, you would be like, Jack, don't talk to her if like I that. Saw, I care about her. If I her. saw this random dude named Jack move into Katie's bedroom and just start <laughs> shit-talking constantly, I would I would do something about exactly. that. Yeah. So, you know, why can't you do that for yourself kind of thing, or like, or how can you do that for yourself, rather, is a yeah. much nicer question. <laughs> well, that, that, that's, a, that's a helpful thing to help people understand externalization, is like, well, what if this was happening to somebody else? Because sometimes you can't see yourself as a person like mm-hmm. you just see yourself as the milieu that you're inside all the time right like it's just sometimes you feel like your environment as well as your actor mm-hmm. i find uh and, and sometimes that can be really tough so to, to have somebody give you that structure is really helpful really helpful and i think the cool thing about that too is externalizing that and having not just be a part of myself that i didn't like but rather this like external figure that i could call upon or not call upon it yeah. gave it gave us the power to start asking questions like when do I want Jack around? Because there are totally times when Jack's really useful. I'm, like, yeah. really good at moving. Because um, like I've moved. Knows? Yeah. Because yeah. I've moved a lot. Because I'm sure. not the most stable person in the whole world. But, uh... That's okay. <laughs> but having Jack, like, show up every time and have, you know, because, like, I'm, like, I'm good at just, like, hefting furniture single-handedly and I'm good at doing, like, the Tetris, like, the... the, the dad superpower of figuring out how to pack everything into the moving van <laughs> all at once. And... Uh, and part of that is that, like, I have Jack, like, just, like, riding me on those days. Yeah. And that's actually a great time when to have him there. you're on a super deadline, sometimes yeah. it's good to have Jack yeah. around. And so, like, getting to realize that, like, I didn't actually want that out of my life altogether. I just wanted to have a relationship mm-hmm. where I could call that force up when I need it. Yeah. He can and come over, but he doesn't get to live there. Exactly. Yeah. yeah. Super great friend to have yeah. on moving day. Totally. And so... <laughs> I, I, that is even useful if you look at Jack as if Jack were a true, real person. Because, Definitely. like, some of us have those yeah. friends in our lives where we're like, you're not good for me all the time, but I don't, like, want to cut you off either. Like, there's th- there are things you can give to each other and get from each other mm-hmm. that are that are still really good. It's just knowing how to have relationships with mm-hmm. all kinds of different people. And I think narrative therapy probably helps with that, too. And the, the, the interesting thing is, like, Jack is, like, entirely a work of fiction, mm-hmm. right? But... The idea that I ought to be able to do all these things in a given day because normal people do it is also a fiction. And narrative therapy is about being like, listen, it's all made up. We made this shit up. Everything it's is not made working up. for us. It's let's all just made make up. up other shit. It's all made up, mm-hmm. guys. It's all made up. <laughs> so that's so what I want to do with my life is bake bread for as many people as I can and offer non pathologizing therapy that's like, hey, you're not broken. We just need to tell better stories. That's so good. I love this episode so much. Can I talk about my narrative therapy yes! experience? So, yes. So I got roped into playing at the narrative therapy conference every year by a friend of mine. And so I played cello in the morning before the keynote speeches for like a couple of years in a row. And in exchange, I got to go to the workshops, which was so amazing. Mm-hmm. So like I learned about like using narrative therapy and like how to develop policy, which was really cool where it was like they did it in that the Wask Center of Dialogue where it's like rings. Oh, in downtown? 
downtown so a bunch of like folks with like lived experience and mental health issues would talk there was a team of narrative therapists in the middle and then all these like doctors and policymakers around the outside so then the like people were allowed to tell their experiences of like really bad experiences with like getting mental health treatment or whatever the narrative therapist would kind of reflect and like go through that process with the person while the doctors all listened Mm -hmm. and then the doctors then also told their story and their point of view of how they've been and whatever pressures they're under and their own structural things that they're dealing with the narrative therapist kind of did that work with them and then everyone kind of got to talk together and see each other's and they came up collectively with a bunch of recommendations for like improving mental health services which i think is so cool. cool And so I'm like, I kind of would like to eventually do that kind of work. Um, mm-hmm. And so I'm on my path to that kind of stuff by learning right now about like how political systems work mm-hmm. now so that I can better help people navigate them. That's kind of my job right now. But uh, in my own personal life, I went to, there's, they always have like really good letter writing workshops and they have really good like relationship workshops where the people actually show like a transcript of a therapy session and you get you follow along with the transcript and watch the video and, like, actually see, like, the questions that were asked. And I found myself really, like, resisting a lot of the relationship stuff because I'm like, well, me and my partner, and this is before we were living together, we're two very separate people, and that's good, and we like that. And so if we were to, like, merge anything together, we'd lose all of our independence, so we just stay separate. And they were kind of like, okay, well, like, where did you learn that story? Like, this is somebody else was kind of talking about this, and I was just listening. And they were saying, like, your relationship could also be an externalized thing. So there's you, there's your partner, and then there's your relationship as a third thing. Mm -hmm. And so then instead of being like, oh, how do I give love to my partner? It's like, how do you nourish your relationship? Yeah. You know, so it's like, you don't necessarily have to, because I'm always worried. It's like, oh, we're going to be codependent if we're like, I'm always thinking about your needs and always this when not prioritizing my own kind of thing. Right. But it's like, how about instead prioritize that relationship that's like the thing that you guys combine together and you Mm -hmm. both have to put equal work into it. So it's not about you taking care of that person. It's about you both taking care of that relationship. And it kind of blew my mind because I was Mm -hmm. like, then I'm still able to keep my own separateness, Mm -hmm. but then we really, this is our teamwork right here. That's like really important to me as well. So then we were able to like, that's super cool. Navigate a bunch of those things. I love it. Yeah. Oh no. Oh no. Oh no. No, no, please. Okay. adorable i love it <laughs> no you talk <laughs> so no, steven universe yes i'm steven, here steven universe yep. um uh i read this article where uh, rebecca sugar one of the show creators oh. or the show creator was talking about um goals behind making this show mm-hmm. and one of the things that was said was um like my goal with this show was to create an action show for kids like and especially for young boys where a relationship was as exciting uh, a thing to point to and, and like, imagine and talk about as a fight. Yeah. Because if you can do that, then, like, there's so much potential for, like, healing and, like, empowering a, new, a young generation uh, to, of, of future men, in most cases, to, like, <laughs> care about relationships and think of them as like cool, powerful, awesome things that let you do more than you could possibly do alone. Mm -hmm. And like, that would be really nice for the world if more men thought that. Very nice. (laughs) (laughs) And so I think like, it's an interesting show where like the fusions when, when I need to like gems like come together and are like, now we're this awesome, super powered thing with this new weapon and cool shoulder pads. Yeah. It's like a really, (laughs) it's, it's, it's a really cool way of like, 
making tangible the thing that you were just talking about, mm-hmm. right? The idea that it's not just like that that our relationship can be its own entity that you can like care about and value and ask like what do we want this to look like? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, what kind of cool weapons and and outfits do we want this relationship to wear? Yeah. <laughs> What color do we want his gloves to be? Really yeah. important questions. It's very important. <laughs> I actually did had uh, gem artwork made for me and my wife. Aww. So we each have our own gem sonas and then our fusion together. Our fusion is azurite, if you're curious. I definitely was curious. <laughs> yeah, I am uh, labradorite. Tessa was watermelon tourmaline, and together we were azurite. Watermelon tourmaline is a really good name yeah. for a character. Uh, I'll show you the pictures after. They're very cute. They're so cute. Were I love they, them. Were they done by the same artist that did our... Who else would I commission? Yeah. <laughs> other than Luna, who I yes. love dearly and is part of the school of Scottish pragmatism. <laughs> Pretty much. <laughs> Pretty much. Pretty much she is. Hmm. I really love... Well, okay, the thing that I wanted to say just real quick was just that this has made me reconsider my decision to not go back and get my uh, uh, d- degree, like my master's degree in therapy, because mm-hmm. I had done all of the undergraduate work to go on and do an MED or an MA in uh, counseling psychology, basically, because I'm very interested... In well, narrative therapy. I'm, I'm. I was always kind of like a bit of an Adlerian. Um, uh, Alfred Adler was actually a fairly early counselor. Um, I don't think very long after the like Freudian Jungian school, mm-hmm. or maybe even a contemporary. He's it's a been, contemporary of them. A while. He was in like Freud's Wednesday Circle initially. Right. But like so many of the principles that he sort of founded his own school of therapy on are still used a lot today mm-hmm. because they were very person centric. They were. They were. They did have aspects of narrative therapy in them. Um, and I really enjoyed that stuff, but just like here talking about it, I, I guess I just convinced myself over time, like that I would be too sensitive to be a therapist, mm-hmm. which is possibly true, but also that's an important thing for a therapist to have is to be sensitive to other people's needs and, and, and whatnot. But I, I thought that I would take on too much and absorb too much from other people. And that is still a concern, but I don't know, this whole conversation has made me think like, maybe that is my contribution because I don't have an idea of what I want to do as a career right now. Like I, right now I am just making things and doing work that will support me in time to give me enough time and money to make the things I like to make. Cause the things I like to make don't get paid for. Mm-hmm. Like I, I do make money occasionally doing comedy, but I'm not going to make like enough to contribute meaningfully to my household. Mm-hmm. So I can't just like quit and do that. And same with writing. Like I don't expect to be making a shit ton of money doing writing right now. So I'm like, what do I want to do? So this is like re-emerging as a possibility for me mm-hmm. because of this episode, I think. Mm-hmm. Do you know about the Adler Institute in Vancouver? Yeah. yeah. I looked into that quite a bit. It's um, private though, so it's very expensive. It's mm-hmm. like $50,000 for yeah. a two-year master's program, which I definitely, I, I thought about for a while, but just realized that like, doing that would mean that I would have to charge more for therapy yeah. coming out of that program that I want to. Like, I really want to to be a force for, like, low-barrier, accessible therapy. Yeah. And a $50,000 grad school program doesn't no. position me well for that. No, um, no. I think the only way I would really do it now is if I could if I could do it with, like, almost full funding. Yeah. Because, yeah, I've, I, I feel like there are, there are things that I have done that would... Uh, there are things I've done, everybody, just so you know. <laughs> I have done things. <laughs> Horrible things. <laughs> You've lived a full, rich life so yeah, far. Yeah, so far that I think I could I could potentially get some like graduate funding, but also like grad school sounds like a horrible idea. I mean, it sounds horrible to me too. I'm not going to grad school. 
Um, You're going to do some of the programs at, like, the Narrative Therapy Institute? Yeah, so I'm doing the five-day intensive certification program through the Vancouver School of Narrative Therapy. I'm going again to the Therapeutic Conversations Conference. I'm doing a lot of self-educating. I've got a bachelor's degree with a bunch of psychology-type stuff Mm -hmm. in there, as well as, like, labor studies and, like, kind of, like, oppression theory stuff worked in there. Mm -hmm. And I'm um, uh, pursuing... Uh, fingers crossed opportunities for practicum placements Um, because I think practicums are super important I think mentorship is super important big time but I've basically just like committed myself to figuring out how to become a competent qualified um, therapist um, without going to grad school because Mm -hmm. academia just like yeah it kind of sucks a lot of the like not only, like, your energy, but then you get stuck sometimes in these structures that aren't actually yeah. helpful to the work that you want to do, and it, yeah. like, puts you in kind of a bad headspace and yeah. reinforces some shitty ideas. I work with grad students yeah. a lot, so <laughs> I know I don't want to be one right now. Yeah. <laughs> like, really, yeah. really clearly, I don't want to be one yeah. right now. I but, dropped out of my bachelor seven times. Mm-hmm. Um, like, it was, it's, it was so painful to get through it. Yeah. Um, I, I think Congratulations it, on doing it, though. <laughs> yeah, I'm, I'm wrapping up final course, yeah. but then then I'm done so fingers crossed mm-hmm. that I can get through this I, I can yeah, I can always totally get through like me. two semesters before dropping out mm-hmm. um, this is not an atypical approach yeah. honestly no. I was gonna say like you are among good friends <laughs> I have I have a friend in Metamore who's been working on a zine for a while called how to how to survive your seventh year of your undergrad yeah um and so, yeah, no, it's definitely not. I think it a... took me about eight years to do mine. I took, like, a big, long break in the middle. If, and... you, if you count, if you truly count all of my school, like, and the big break in between took me 11 years. Yeah. So, yeah. Mm-hmm. I started at Kwantlen, and then I came back when I was 25 to SFU, mm-hmm. and then finished when I was 29. Mm-hmm. So it took me, it took me a while. Mm-hmm. Well, I'm in good company. Yeah. You're totally reassuring. good company. Yeah. But, yeah, no, definitely becoming a therapist, um for me, needs to mean not working through a grad school program. I think that's it, great. It needs to mean, like, intensive uh, training and hands-on training and self-directed training mm-hmm. and curiosity-led training yeah. and practicums and mentorships yeah. and, like, coffees with people who I want to learn from, and it needs to not involve committing myself to, like, 24-plus mm-hmm. months That's so good. grind. And then my question always is, like going back to the Scottish pragmatists, like, whatever, (laughs) where it's just, like, what would work, like, in terms of certification and, like, credentials? Like, is that something that's important to us, like, have those credentials or to just be able to do the work? Like, do you need the credentials in order to, like, for example, take people's insurance or whatever? Like, so that's important to, like, get those certifications. But, like, what other... Yeah, so the thing that um, was... I don't know uh, if that's helpful or interesting, but I think about that, like, if you're not going to, like, school or, like, grad school, like, what other ways can you put together, like, the credentials that you would need to, mm-hmm. yeah. Um, a thing that was interesting for me to learn a few years ago is that both therapist and counselor are not protected titles in British Columbia, mm-hmm. which means that anyone can and just be, like... It's like being a doula. That's why, that's mm-hmm. what I was thinking of, because yeah. I did my, like, weekend doula program, and then I'm like, well, I'm a doula now. I've never done anything with this before, and it took, like, a lot of practicum and, like, just working in the job and just doing the job, mm-hmm. you know. Well, part of uh, doula licensing within with, like, the 
Uh, what's sorry? What's the largest body? The Dona or whatever. Dona. But that's like part of part of their licensing though. Even is having done been a doula already for three yeah. births. So the the entire licensing process is like first you have to do a bunch unli- of work yeah. unlicensed. And it's not licensed. Which is interesting. It's not even licensing at all. You can still practice without it. It's just literally you get to put these credentials on your name to say that I am. There is like a set of ethics and standards that I have been trained right. under. Yeah. And that's all. It's just like any like the College of Counselors like in British Columbia. Yeah. It's like these are our practice standards. You can get an RCC, but it doesn't guarantee anything mm-hmm. for you. Like mm-hmm. like most people's insurance don't won't pay for an RC won't pay for a registered clinical most counselor. Most people most people's insurance doesn't pay for any kind of counseling support <laughs> at all. So it's like, mm-hmm. very hopefully, true. Hopefully that'll change. Very true. Like, yeah, I pay yeah. out of pocket. Yeah. My my goal personally is to like be doing low barrier, low cost mm-hmm. yep. narrative therapy, especially for trans and queer community. And I'm that means I'm dealing with a segment of the population who mostly don't have stable jobs mm-hmm. that have stable and expansive benefits. Exactly. So I actually don't need to worry about yeah, whether exactly. I'm gonna be yeah. covered by the by someone's insurance because they won't have it. That's kinda what I was thinking. Yeah. So no, I think that's that's really awesome. I, I like the idea. But that frees of, you up a little bit to then yeah. come at the work through like, yeah, different methods. And to come yeah. at it from like what will be best for my learning, what will make me the most skilled and empowered te- like practitioner possible, and what will help me to provide that therapy in a low barrier way. Awesome. So, yeah, that's that's the life project. That and bread. <laughs> Can we end it right there? Sure. I just thought that was so perfect. <laughs> Avery, thank you so much for being here. Yeah. This was an excellent episode, and yeah. I feel very uh, energized in my in my heart. Yeah, good. Which is bigger <laughs> now somehow. Yeah. Your goals have been. I feel yeah. You transformed came, into me. You came into this like quite tired, and now you're just like buzzing. I'm beaming. That's great. Yeah. I'm let's beaming. Go, let's just, go to a party. Just like that's like my Oprah thing. I love bread. <laughs> It's because I was like, have you heard of bread? Have you heard about bread? <laughs> it's me, Oprah. Did you know I love bread? Like, yeah, you told us already, Oprah. Yeah. Have, have some bread. Um, can we plug your game, your new game, that, or it's like yeah. re-release, come back out? Is that Monster Hearts? Yeah. How can people get that? So it's an awesome story game? Yeah, Monster Hearts 2 is the project that I'm yes. currently working on with story games. I had like quit story games for a while, but but have returned to it. Um and it's currently available on pre-order. It's a game about uh, teenagers who are secretly monsters, which is definitely probably in most cases a metaphor for experiences of queerness and marginalization and otherness. Um, and so, yeah, it's a game of uh, uh, teenage vampires and werewolves having dysfunctional relationships, and it's available for pre-order. <laughs> and it's available for pre-order on my website, which is... Buriedwithoutceremony.com We'll put a link. <laughs> we will put a link. Thank you so much for being our guest today. Yay. You're lovely and I love talking to you. <laughs> we'll have to have you back sometime.